Our scripture reading today is from Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24, and then also verse 28. This is found on page 978 in your pew Bible, and as always, if you don't own a Bible, or if you know someone who doesn't own a Bible, we invite you to take this one home as a gift. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Let's hear the word of the Lord. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Taylor. Good morning. It's great to be with you. This is a really a treat for me. Uh, as Taylor mentioned, my family and I, we attend the Brookside campus and have uh, for the last seven years or so, and we are faithful back lefters. So, you know, that's our spot. I don't know if you have your spot, but we have our spot in the back left. So if you haven't met, it's because you haven't ventured that way. Uh, that's where we're on, at in most Sunday mornings. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I was a... Uh, pastor here at Christ Community Church from 2009 to 2011, did the pastoral residency program uh, with Bill Gorman. Uh, We were at the same time going through that program. We lived downtown uh, on the corner of 10th and Broadway. So if you've ever been down there, it's the Quality Hill Apartments, and uh, we cut our teeth in ministry in those early days back then. And and back in 2009, uh, I guess you can do the math because we're coming up on our 10th year anniversary, the Brookside campus hadn't been launched yet. So obviously this building was here, but uh, this church as we know it didn't exist then. So it's amazing to see what God has done in this last decade. As Taylor mentioned, now I work with an organization called Made to Flourish. We're a national organization working with pastors and churches across the country, about 4,500 pastors, uh, helping their congregations connect faith in Christ with where people spend most of their time in their work, whether that's paid or unpaid. I guess that's probably uh, why I was asked to speak today, uh, is because the text in Ephesians, we've been walking through Ephesians, uh, Paul actually talks about the topic of work. Uh, So this is not supposed to be super complicated, but it's one of the most important conversations we can keep coming back to. What does following Jesus have to do with where you're spending your time and your energy? Anytime I talk about work, we're talking about contribution, not compensation. So it's wherever you're spending your time and your energy. I think about my dad. My dad was a high school superintendent in a small town, population 400. So that's a really small town. There was a school there. Uh, He's a superintendent, and I'd see him get up every single day at 6 a.m. He'd get ready for work. He'd put a suit on. I was a suit in those days. And uh, he'd want to be to the school by 7 a.m. He'd want to get there before the students arrived and the teachers arrived so he could have some quiet uh, to work. And then he'd work a long day and usually come home around 5 p.m. So he was home in time for dinner. But then many nights he'd go back to the school because there was a sports game or there was something with the theater or the music department or a board meeting. He worked hard. A few years back, uh, my parents had their 60th wedding anniversary. Uh, I'm the baby of my family. They're in, they're in their 80s. And uh, we were reflecting back on their life, and I interviewed them. And my dad started talking about his work. It was really interesting to listen to him. Uh, 
he could recount like the exact graduation rates. He knew like how many people went into a vocational trade versus on to college. He recounted like some of the projects that he worked on as a superintendent. You could tell it meant something to him. And then in another part of my dad's life, we grew up going to church. We were in the pews every Sunday. None of this once or twice a month stuff that, you know, kind of passes today because of all the activities that go on. And it's interesting because I think back, and in all my years attending church, I don't think I ever heard how following Jesus related to work. And I don't think my dad ever heard from the church that the 50 or 60 hours a week a work a week, empowering teachers to have all they need and encouraging students, how any of that had anything to do with what God was doing in the world. And I think that would have made a big difference in my dad's life if he would have had some help in that. I mean, you just do the math. The average adult will spend almost 60,000 of our hours of our lives working, paid or unpaid. So if faith in Christ is supposed to be at the center of our lives, how would that impact where we spend most of our time? We've been in this series, uh, Reconstructing Faith, asking what it might look like to build back faith that has been deconstructed. And this topic of how faith relates to our work lives is important because we have to wrestle with. You have to wrestle with whether faith is only private and personal and relevant for like this tiny minority of our lives or if it actually has public relevance. And by the way, the world of work is hurting in our world. So many people are hurt in the world of work. So to help us think more about that today, we're going to be continuing on in Ephesians looking at one little sentence uh, about honest work. And I have to say, if you were looking to summarize uh, the biblical view of work, this one little sentence we're going to look at actually does a pretty good job of it. It's kind of like a little acorn that contains within it an entire tree, and we'll be unpacking that. So, uh, where are we headed? This little sentence, uh, this little acorn has three parts. What does honest work require? Secondly, what does honest work include? And then thirdly, what does honest work enable? So I'm going to read that sentence, Ephesians 4.28, if you want to follow along in, in the Pew Bible. Uh, here's, here's the text again. It says, let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Honest work begins by requiring repentance from dishonest work. So that first part, let, let the thief no longer steal. It, Paul here is almost quoting verbatim from the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal. And I think we all know what stealing is, right? It's taking another person's property, without permission or legal right, and without intending to return it. But I wonder what comes into your mind when you think about stealing or theft. Because what comes into my mind is like sort of a scene from Les Miserables, Jean Valjean, you know, he's staying over at the priest's house, and he sneaks in the middle of the night to get like the, the choice silver so he can take and sell it. Or maybe you think about a pickpocket or a, a shoplifter. In other words, when I first read this command, it appears to be directed at a pretty narrow, specific crime, and I feel like it has nothing to do with me. I don't think of myself as a theft. In fact, I almost decided not to talk about this part of the verse when I was preparing the sermon. I was going to skip over it. But there's this funny thing in the Bible. 
wrongdoing is like a dandelion. You know what I'm talking about? You got these dandelions in your yard? The flower that we see is only a small part of the plant, but the roots go way down into the ground. Most of the plant you can't see. That's why when Jesus discusses things like murder, I kind of feel like I'm off the hook. And then the more he talks about it, it's like, whoa, I need to think way more about this. I'm not off the hook. Sin is like a dandelion. There's a root that you can see, but it's all part of the same weed. So I'm not sure what theft looked like in Ephesus in the first century. But as you look out throughout the Bible, you find that there's lots of different kinds of stealing. It takes on many kinds of forms. So here's just a, a few examples of what you'll see in the Bible. First of all, you'll find uh, embezzlement. So it doesn't exactly use that word, but that's essentially what it is. It's being in charge of money, and you just kind of skim a little bit off the top. No one has to know about it. This was the sin of Judas. In John 12, it says he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself. I love how that puts it. Help himself to what was put into it. Here's another form of stealing in the Bible. Not paying those who have done work for you. This is Leviticus 19.3. You shall not steal and you shall not keep for yourself the wages of a laborer until morning. So you hire someone to do something and like, I'm just not going to get around to paying them. I might not pay them for a long time. Here's a third category, charging more than what is owed, especially if the consumer doesn't have a sense of what the pricing should be. So in the first century, this was true of tax collectors. Here's the, a text in Luke chapter three. It said, even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do if we're gonna repent and turn our lives around? John the Baptist said, don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Here's a fourth category of stealing in, in the Bible. This will be the last one that I point to. Extortion. This is when you obtain money through threatening people or forcing them to, like, if I'm going to let you off the hook, you have to give me money. This was a big deal for soldiers in the first century. Um, so here's the text in Luke uh, 3.14. Some soldiers came to John the Baptist and said, what should we do if we're going to repent and follow God? He said, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. See, theft in the world of Ephesus was all over the place. Both taking what someone owned, but also withholding what you owed someone. I have a question. When you look around at our world today, what would you say? Is like theft pervasive? Or <laughs> I had to think about it. And what I realized is we live in a knowledge economy, which means that you would expect theft it if it happened in our world, would probably be happening in the knowledge economy as well. And if you look at the data, that's exactly uh, what you'll see. So here's a few forms of stealing in our, in our day. Here's the first category, identity theft. Anyone had their uh, credit card taken in like the last year or the last week? I feel like I'm always getting notifications. This is particularly harmful for people who are retired. They get take advantage a lot. Uh, the stat comes from AARP, victims lost $52 billion to identity thieves in 2021. Here's a second category, tax fraud and avoidance. So Charles Reddick, the commissioner at the IRS, estimates the U.S. loses one trillion, that's not a typo, one trillion with a T, dollars every year in unpaid taxes. Here's a third category in our day, stealing intellectual property. So this is when a business sees another business's good idea that's protected or their branding or something like that, and I'm gonna go over here and make some money even though 
that's protected. The, the Commission on the Theft of American Analytical Prop Property estimates that annual costs from IP losses may be as high as $600 billion. Here's a fourth category. This is maybe what comes to our mind, shoplifting. According to the Retail Industry Leaders Association, as much as $68.9 billion worth of products were stolen from retailers in 2019. And that was pre-COVID, and stealing has gone up after, uh, after COVID. But here's the thing. What these don't show is that actually most stealing, shoplifting, happens from employees, not people coming into a business. Almost three times as much is stolen from people that work at a business and take things from the business. Here's a fifth category, and now I'm starting to kind of meddle a little bit more, so I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll, these next two categories. Not this one, the next one, actually. This, this, one, is, uh, this one is more normal. Here's, here's the fifth category, not paying for work that others have done. So if you are a small business owner or a freelancer, you've probably been on the wrong side of this. According to a 2019 study commissioned by Freelancers Union, which represents over 56 million independent workers across the U.S., 74% of freelancers have experienced non-payment or late payment from clients. The average freelance worker lost $5,900 on missed payments this year, which accounted for 13% of their total income. If you're a freelancer in today's economy, you have to budget for theft. It's just normal for what you're going to have to deal with. Here's the one that's meddling here. Not working at work and still collecting a paycheck. So this is a big deal in our world. According to data collected by Gallup, 66% of workers in the American workforce are checked out of their jobs, resulting in an estimated 400 to $600 billion a year in lost productivity. So I could go on and on and on. You add it all up, and just with these examples, you're talking about two to three trillion dollars of our economy in theft. That's about half the entire federal budget, just in theft categories. So I'm in the church world. I work with pastors and churches. I served as a pastor for many years. What does theft look like for pastors? Actually, it's very obvious if you're a pastor. It's plagiarism. In our world of pastoring, plagiarism is primary, the primary mode of stealing. We steal people's ideas or their sermons, and we pass them as our own, and then we get paid for it. In fact, I bet if you look closely enough, you'll find that almost every single kind of work has its own unique kind of theft. There's a unique form of stealing if you're a financial professional or a mechanic or a nonprofit leader or a middle manager. Because in every profession, there are unique temptations and opportunities to take what is not ours. It's everywhere. So why? Why is stealing so pervasive? Because work is hard. It's really hard. Can I get an amen there? Sometimes it requ just requires a lot of time and energy. At, at other times, work can be frustrating or boring or disappointing. Sometimes it is painful. Do you know what all that difficulty in our work sounds like? Do you, know, do you know the sound that it makes, that difficulty that we experience? I'll tell you what the sound is. Ugh. Usually with a corresponding massage of the forehead, as in, ugh, that sale that I've been working six months on, they said everything was going to go through, and it fell through. All my work is down the drain. Or, ugh. I've got two more hours on my shift and my back is killing me and it's got to be 110 degrees out here. 
If you've worked any length of time, you've made that noise. Everyone in the entire world who has worked any length of time has made that noise. And you see, the Bible's very clear on this. Work in our broken, sinful world will be full of groaning. And because work is full of groaning, we look for ways to get out of it. We look for a shortcut, an easier way. And, and one of the most common ways we try to make things easier is by taking what isn't rightfully ours. We try to find ways to be compensated without the toil and without the groaning. But in a world where stealing is everywhere, Paul now says, not so with you. This new community of Jesus followers is characterized by putting off theft in any form. And whatever has been true in our past, whoever you are, in Christ, stealing now has no place. Now, notice that Paul doesn't end the sentence there. He doesn't end the sentence with a don't. That's because the Christian life is not simply a list of don'ts. Don't do this, don't do that, make sure you don't do that. Wouldn't that be awful if that was the entire Christian life? What if that was true in other realms? Can you imagine explaining to someone how to play the saxophone? And you just say, oh, it's, it's easy to play the saxophone. You just, you don't play out of tune, you don't play too loud or too soft, you don't play too fast or too slow, and you don't press the wrong keys. That's how you play. Of course not. Saxophone players spend way more time learning how to actually make music because that's the point. And what is true of the saxophone is all the more true of following Jesus. There's not only the negative, but there's a positive vision of the good life, the life according to God's design, and that's where Paul goes next in the text. Look at the next part of the verse. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Honest work includes all labor, which produces something good. All labor. Now, normally I wouldn't do this, but I want to show you one other translation of this verse in a different version of the Bible and compare it with what we just read. So here's what we just read in the uh, ESV, English Standard Version. It says, but rather let him labor, doing honest work uh, with his own hands. That's a good translation. But look at the NASB. It's a little bit uh, more of a literal kind of word for word of the Greek translation. Um, here's what it says. It says, rather he must labor, producing with his own hands what is good. I don't always prefer a more little translation of the Bible, but in this case, this is actually a better translation. It, it gets the sense that each of us is to produce by our own effort and work something that is good, something that has value. So here's a question I want to ask you. What makes your work good, whether it's paid or unpaid? I mean, if we just pass the mic around, we got a lot of different kinds of work represented here today. There's probably like architects or mailmen or stay-at-home parents or business owners, marketers. If Jesus came up to you, Jesus himself, and he looked you in the eye and he said, as you labor, produce what is good, what would that even look like? I don't know if you've uh, consciously realized it, but our culture gives a lot of answers about what makes work good. Here are the few of the most common answers that uh, we hear, that we sense in our culture. First of all, uh, you've heard this or sense this. Your work is good if it's aimed at saving the world or changing the world. Some big project that's really important is going to change a lot of things. Your work has value if you can find one of those careers. 
So Elon Musk uh, tweets out, he's the CEO of Tesla, he sends out a tweet as he's prone to do, and he said, sure, it's hard to work at Tesla, but no one ever changed the world on 40 hours a week. So for the CEO of Tesla, work, the, the meaning of it is changing the world, and that's the business that we do. Puts a lot of pressure on your day job, I, I do have to say. Here's a second category. Work is good if it's an outlet for your passion. You heard that? Do what you love. Here's a quote. If you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. That was Steve Jobs about 10 years ago. It's sort of lovely, I I have to say. I'm not sure how many of the world's six billion people can ever hope to say it, but it's really got a nice ring to it. Here's another one that's common in in our culture. Work is good if it earns a large income. So I can still remember being like a sophomore in high school. They had these books that talked about different careers. It had like a page describing it. And then in the upper right, it would have a box for how much like you would make in that career, how much money. Did you guys have these books in your high school? Anyway, I remember looking through that and thinking like, I don't need to read the description. <laughs> I just need to look at the box and find out how much you make in the career. That's how you decide, which is why I became a pastor, obviously. <laughs> I didn't connect the dots, obviously. I wonder how you would complete that sentence. Work is good if fill in the blank. Now, some of these stories about what makes work good have an element of truth to them. They're not all bad, but left alone, they're at least incomplete. They all ignore what the Bible says makes work good. So in the Bible, work is good for three simple main reasons. There's actually more reasons, but three simple ones. First of all, our God is described as a worker. I don't know if you know that, but when you, when you open the pages of your Bible, the first thing we learn about God is not that he's holy or just or compassionate or merciful, it's that he's actually at work in our world, working, making something about his creation. It's not only functional, but it's beautiful to look at. That's our God. The second reason our work has value is because God isn't, that's not only true of him, but it says he makes us in our image. He creates likenesses of himself. He puts people uh, on his, in his world and he says, do as I have done, steward this world, make something out of the potential of the world. And that's why he doesn't first give Adam and Eve a, a hymn book. He'll do that later with the psalmist, but he gives them a shovel. And he says, here, garden, make something out of the creation that I've, I've created. But there's a third reason that we don't think about quite as much, or I I don't usually think about quite as much, and it's this. God is involved with you and your work to serve the tangible needs of others and bring delight to the world. God is actually involved in the content of your work, teaching and doing his work through us. This is just a, I've been reflecting on this more and more lately, and and one of the verses I've been chewing on is this verse from Isaiah. This just blew my mind when when I read it recently. This is uh, describing the work of a farmer, by the way. It says, does the plowman plow every day to plant seed? Answer, no. Does he continuously break up and cultivate soil? Answer again, no. He plants wheat in rows and barley in plots with spelt as their border. His God teaches him order. He instructs him. Certainly black cumin is not threshed with a threshing board, and a cart wheel is not rolled over the cumin, but black cumin is beaten out with a stick, and cumin with a rod. Bread grain is crushed, but it's not threshed endlessly. 
Though the wheel of the farmer's cart rumbles, his horses do not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He gives wonderful advice. He gives great wisdom. This is an amazing text. <laughs> the whole thing is talking about like all the insider knowledge that a farmer has, like little tricks of the trade, uh, little ways that they can kind of, you know, a little hack that can maximize yield. And they say things like, you know, bread grain needs to be crushed, not thrust too much. You might ruin it. Or there's a way to, when, when you're guiding the horse, on the, there's a way to guide it so you don't, you don't crush the seed. It takes skill and attention. So there's an art and a craft to how to do it well. You'd have to be a farmer to really appreciate what this text. And then this verse says that God is the one who instructs and teaches the farmer these things. Do you know what that means? It means that God is into the craft, the technique, the nitty-gritty details of how to do it well. After all, it's his creation. He designed it with those properties to be explored and discovered and to be used to help others flourish. This is profound for your work. So you're a hairstylist. And there's a particular way that you deal with certain kinds of hair, whether it's thick or whether it's thin. Or you see a thin spot and you know how to do something about it. Or the, the way it sits on the face, you think about it. All of it matters to how you bring beauty and confidence to someone and dignity to someone. Or you're a server at the restaurant and you figured out this, there's this rhythm, how to do it well, of like when and how to check in with people and how to offer a suggestion that's going to align with the occasion and the temperament of the person. You can just tell talking to them. Or you're a financial advisor, and you know what questions to ask to draw out someone's risk tolerance or their values or help them unpack the bigger picture of what they want their wealth to do in the world. On and on, there are tricks to your trade. This passage in Isaiah says God is actually involved in that. He's interested in that. He's actually your ultimate instructor. Your work participates with the work that he wants to do in the world. Work becomes good when through increasing excellence and love, people are increasingly helped by the way your work serves them. It's a way to show God's love, God's provision, his grace, his care, his purposes in the world. And God isn't standing off to the side bored by what you do. He's engaged in the craft. This is Dorothy Sayers, a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, what she said about the same subject. She said, the only Christian work is good work well done. Work must be good work before it can call itself God's work. Let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in their profession or trade, not outside of it. So work designed by God is designed to produce something good in and of itself that helps others. But in the Bible, labor is also good for what it enables. And now this is the third part of the text that we'll look at today. Look back at how the passage finishes. Producing something with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Honest work enables generosity. This last clause points to another reason why we work. It provides for our needs and it enables us to have something to share with those in need. 
I still remember some of my first paychecks that I got in my working life. Do you, do you remember like your first paycheck when you like held it, you know, back when they used to send you paychecks, you know, they were paper. I remember like looking at it and just like, whoa, this is a lot of money. What am I going to do with all this? It had so much possibility uh, for work in the world. As life goes on, the number of bills that consume that paycheck also increase, don't they? If you've been working for long enough, it can be easy to begin thinking that the sole purpose of earning money is only to fulfill your own needs or your own little tribe's needs. I feel that in my life. But one of the great gifts of work is that it actually allows us to be generous, to have something to share with others. It lets us express an aspect of who God is. And I'll just say, it doesn't always require extravagance or even a lot of money. In fact, one of the examples that Paul uh, will brag about in one of his letters, it's in the letter of 2 Corinthians, we're not going to look at it, but there's this group called the Bereans. And Paul basically says they were incredibly poor, they were in poverty, but rich generosity flowed out of them because they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to other people. So, Having very little, the, the Bereans gave very much. There's actually a lot of great data. You can Google this, available on giving by zip code uh, or area of the country, and the data consistently shows that people who live in low-income zip codes actually are some of the most generous uh, as a percentage of their income. So this is not about having so much excess that you can't possibly think of how to use it all, so you might as well share it with other people. In fact, one of the great dangers is believing the lie that we can start to share when we have just a little bit more, a little bit later. I'm not ready quite to do that yet. The Ephesians themselves in this passage were very likely people of very meager means, and yet this is what Paul invites them to. So this can be a small amount to share or a very a large amount to share, but it comes through work. It could be an extra piece of bread it could be an extra room in your house. Or it could be something a thousand times that much. I love how Dorothy Day puts this. She was a, a, a leader in kind of the Catholic uh, labor movement. Here's what she said. It said, it seems to me that in the future, the family, the ideal family, will always try to care for one more. I love that. Have you ever been on the receiving end of someone who had something to share with you? It's like you're receiving life itself, especially if you are at a point in your life of great need. I wonder if there's a close family member you think of or a good friend. And when you think of them, you've noticed they're always finding like different ways to share with those in need. I think of my parents. I don't mean to be so self-reflective, but um, they're in their 80s and I've been thinking about their life. You know, they lived in a small town. I already said that my dad was an educator. My mom was a stay-at-home parent, stayed with the kids. So it was a home where all of our needs were met and then some, but it was a home of modest means. Recently, not actually connected to the sermon, I was thinking about kind of the way they've shown generosity through their life, and I realized that it kept showing up in like all these different places and ways. First of all, I always knew that my dad, you know, every other week he had that check in his hand. When the offering plate would come, I knew he gave, gave faithfully to the church, even though I didn't know it was in, on the inside of that check. And then once a year, there was this missionary family that would come through. They were from Mexico, 
and they were doing who knows what in Mexico, but uh, they were connected to our church. And we would meet with him every once in a while. And just a couple weeks ago, my dad said he was meeting with him again, now in his 80s. And he kind of just casually said, yeah, we've, we've kind of supported them. And I did the math. I think it's been the last 50 years that they've come alongside this, this missionary family in Mexico. There was the local homeless shelter that my mom got excited about. She was always kind of helping with donations of clothes and trying to get it off to the, to the shelter so they would have what they, they needed as well as a check each year. There was the time a year ago when a, a local radio producer from the Christian radio stopped by. He knocked on our house and he just said, I wanted to thank you for uh, your faithful giving through the years. And my mom, who was just giving a little bit, uh, you know, it added up over the years and she was blown away that this guy would stop by. And then one other story. I called my parents a couple weeks ago, and you know, my mom's 85, she's got a walker, she can barely walk um, across the room. And I called them, and they said they were in the parking lot of a grocery store. And I'm like, why are you guys in the parking lot of a grocery store? And they said, oh, our, our neighbor, who's a very difficult person, just between you and me, uh, our neighbor, didn't have a car and they needed a ride to the grocery store, so we gave them a ride. There's a little check here, a little assembly of clothes over there, a 16-year-old car that gives a neighbor a ride. Nothing flashy, nothing extravagant, but when I look at it, it was as if they actually believed at their core that after working with their hands, producing something that was good, they were entrusted to share with anyone in need. Maybe you've seen generosity like that. Someone who's always finding a new way to share, finding new ways to give. And when you see it, I have to say it's really compelling. I'm, I didn't think I was going to get choked up right now, but it's strange, actually. It's, it doesn't seem normal. In our world where everyone is doubling down on their own concerns and wants and needs, it's different. It has the aroma of Christ. Because that's what he does. That's who he is. That's how he acts. God is at work constantly in our world and in you and me, always producing what is good. And then he gives freely, lavishly, gratuitously, both in the gifts of his creation, but especially in the gift of grace that none of us here are accepted by him by doing good work, but like just lavish grace that he said, I receive you because I love you. Come to me, put your faith in me. We actually read about that earlier in this series in Ephesians. Here's the verse. It says, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There it is again, except for the, the orders reversed. It's God's gift, his, his sharing, his generosity first. And then his work is mentioned. Did you see it there? They use the word handiwork. Did you see the object of God's handiwork? You. You are his handiwork. And God has promised that he won't stop working on you, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until Christ Jesus returns. Work and generosity, that's the story that God is writing. And that's what we're called to but only because of his work and his generosity to us in Christ. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we remember you today. You are at work in a thousand ways and in a million ways that we cannot see, we will never see, but we trust that you are at work in our world and you actually call us to do work that looks like you, that is generous and kind and, and helps others. I pray for some today that maybe they've lost a sense of why their work matters or they're just in a difficult situation. May you, by your spirit, encourage them. They're, you're actually engaged in what they're doing. And for all of us, Heavenly Father, this is, this is hard for me. It's hard for us as Americans. Would you open up our hands to, to be willing to share with those who are in need around us? Because that's what we know you've done first with us. We pray this thing in Christ's name, all God's people said. Amen. Amen.